Hello, and welcome to the Race, Wealth, and Health Podcast, a podcast that serves to educate and empower while we explore the intersections of social justice, economic empowerment, and holistic well being with the communities of color. I am your host, Dr. Joycelyn Morris, and I invite you to join me as we dive deep into the crucial topics that shape our lives, challenge the status quo, and strive for a more equitable future for all. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Race, Wealth, and Health. I'm your host, Joycelyn Morris, and I'm super excited to have Erica Taylor with me on the podcast today. Welcome, Erica. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yes. Erica's going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is the wealth gap and in ways that we can unravel and sort of break down the wealth gap. But before we do that, I want to give a very brief introduction to our listeners. So Erica Taylor is currently the acting chief of staff and director of popular education for the organization Take on Wall Street at AFRAF. REF, which she's going to tell us exactly what those acronyms mean. But prior to joining Take on Wall Street Initiative, she served as co-director of the DC Working Families Party. Erica spent the bulk of her career organizing and advocacy, including positions with Organizing Neighborhood Equity, DC, DC ACORN, and Tenants and Workers Support Committee. She's also worked as a program officer with the Public Welfare Foundation and trained youth organizers as a Southeast Regional Program Coordinator for Youth Action. Erica has served on the boards of Western State Center, National Priorities Project, La Clinica del Pueblo, and Jews United for Justice. And currently, she sits on the board of the Penn Faulkner Foundation. So with that, I say welcome again, Erica. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Joycelyn. I really appreciate your having me. So let's start by you telling me a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I I struggled over the acronyms, but basically AFR is Americans for Financial Reform, right? And so you work specifically as part of the Take on Wall Street initiative that, or campaign there. Tell us a little bit about that and then how you got into this space. and work. Sure. Sure. So Americans for Financial Reform, which is the, the mother organization, as you said, of Take on Wall Street, was formed in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was a point when folks said we really need to hold Wall Street accountable for what they've done and we need stronger regulations in place. So a couple hundred organizations came together. These are you know faith-based organizations, consumer groups, civil rights groups, labor groups, and, and fought really hard. And AFR, this coalition, was central mm-hmm. and, and passing the what became the Dodd-Frank law for financial reform yeah. and from out of which was born the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is one of our most powerful agencies in the government for sort of like standing up for consumers and fighting back against everything from predatory lenders to um, private for-profit colleges that, that have sort of ripped people off and, you know, and falsified their placement rates. So that's AFR. And Take on Wall Street was born in 2016, a few years later, because Dodd-Frank is fantastic. Um, the, the Consumer Financial Protection Board is amazing. And yet we still have so far to go. So Take on yeah. Wall Street was a campaign to sort of say, we, you know, look, we've won these reforms. We need to protect them, but we need to go further. So we have sort of a, a three-pronged approach at, at Take on Wall Street, which is to train progressives, to inform the political debate, because we have a C4 arm so we can engage with electeds and candidates, and then to deliver policy change, you know, covering 
everything from executive compensation to saving the post office to public banking to countering, I think, ESG, the environmental, social, and governance concerns seem to be like the new CRL or CRT, critical race theory you know, of the day, yep. sort of like this, these, myths, these mythologies pumping up and to, that distract people from what the reality is. So that's uh, Take on Wall Street in a nutshell. When you read my bio, it's very clear that I'm a generalist. <laughs> and so I, I came to this work, honestly, less, to, less through the issue area and more through the strategy of popular education. Because I've played a number of roles in my career, but at my heart, I'm a popular educator and I love training and facilitation and, and popular education, which is a slightly different model. Not slightly, it's a dramatically different model than sort of like the many standard educational systems. So the opportunity to work for the popular education program brought me into the fold. Thank you so much for that background and introduction. And for our listeners, so I wasn't originally aware of the Americans for Financial Reform. I'm very aware of Dodd-Frank. Uh, for listeners who know, like my background was in finance. So I used to work on Wall Street. I actually started in 2007, so whatever that's worth, right before the crash. So I remember, and then, you know, experienced the bulk of my career post the crash. So I remember all the auditing, Dodd-Frank, like that was definitely a, a big uh, term frequently used at the bank, but forgot to mention sort of how we, we came to connect. And so, because I had not heard of the organization, but your communication associate actually reached out from America's Financial Reform. And I guess somehow the podcast got on his radar and Eric and I were, was able to have a really great introductory call, which I enjoyed. And I was so excited again to kind of nerd out and talk about the things that are important as it relates to this, this wealth gap, right? And so I was so intrigued by your experience as it relates to being on the ground and working with the wealth gap. But one of the things you mentioned in terms of working with the popular education model, so I don't want to assume that our listeners know what that is. So if you can give us a brief understanding of what it is and then what does it look like in terms of your day-to-day -day work? Fair enough. No problem. Yes, popular education is not nearly as well known as, uh, you know, because like people education, isn't that everything? But this is a very specific model that was created by uh, this Brazilian educator, Paulo Freire. And the idea is, is, is more of a how than a what. So it's like a modality of teaching. So popular education counters the passive approach we ha that we often see, you know, in the states and school systems where you have the, a person with wisdom at the front of the room and everyone else is a sort of these, you know, passive vessels waiting to be filled with their knowledge. Popular education comes from a sense that no matter what your role in society, you know, what your background is, your life includes experiences that inform, that are based on sort of how the world operates, right? You understand systems uh, innately just because of the way you know, certain systems inter interact with you. So popular education is about drawing from people's lived experiences. And then it's not just about bringing forth that knowledge, but it's also it's very directly and clearly about transformation. So it's not popular education if the end goal isn't change. Uh, the nature of popular education isn't all things are equal. Both sidesism is uh, an antithesis to that because popular education believes we do not have justice in the world. So it's very much or, you know, you know, oriented towards toward social justice, economic justice, racial justice, and yeah. the systems are wrong. So it takes us coming together and using our collective knowledge to build systems that, that uh, meet the needs of everyone. I like that. To your point, it, it's not something I was super familiar with. And, and how long has this education model been around? 
Yeah, Freire, uh, I want to say the, the, the big book that he created was The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And I want to say that it came out in the late 50s, early 60s. So it's not quite 100 years old, but it's been warmly received sort of in, in social justice and activist circles because, because of this sort of flipping of the dynamic and recognizing the power of, of regular everyday people. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I'd love to, with my guests, really understand how they got to where they are, right? So the beautiful thing that I get to do is interview people who are very passionate about the work that they're doing. And so it's always interesting to me to see or hear about that uh, career journey and, and that arc. So how did you came into the work that you're currently doing? Because if I recall correctly, you start out on a very different path uh, as college. So please do share. Absolutely. And I did. My expectation from, you know, middle school and certainly high school on was that I would be a journalist, you know, working for magazines, living in Greenwich Village. I had a very clear yeah. vision. It was a nice neighborhood. It yeah. is. And uh, and I'd never been even at, at that point in my life. But, the, you know, I you know, heard about the you know, mystique. And I'm like, this is a cool spot. And I had the privilege of attending my undergrad university as a rising high school senior and taking, as I love English lit, and I was taking a lit class. And one of our, and my professors, you know, mentioned to us um, all that you should study what you love. He's like, you know, people want to know that you can think when you graduate. So don't worry about majoring in something that's sort of career oriented. If you want to become a doctor and you'd rather not major in, in biology, then maybe there's something wrong with your <laughs> career alignment there, right? So I thought, well, uh, I don't really you know journalism is was what i envisioned because i i know that it comes with an income right and right. fiction is what is what i love and so i thought okay well i'm just gonna major in english which i did and wrote i was a columnist when i was an, an undergrad and with our uh, daily paper i wasn't a daily columnist i only published every week but when I graduated, because of all the writing I'd done with a student paper, uh, I was able to get a job with the university's uh, alumni uh, magazine, and I covered all these amazing people doing this brilliant work out in the world. And I thought, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm young. I'm, I want to do this work. I don't want to just write about it. I want to get in, get in there and, and dig around. Mm -hmm. So I, I moved down to DC and uh, became a community organizer. And from there was sort of pulled into the movement work. I learned all about everything from community benefits agreements to predatory lending to affordable housing crises because of slumlords and, and was given the language to put to things that I witnessed, right? Like gentrification is visible in lots of places, but, I did, but I, I, this gave me a framework to understand what was going on. And as time went on, I realized, okay, well, we're addressing these problems. And I believe, and I think that our, our sort of primary orientation at Take on Wall Street is that you can't really solve a problem without understanding where it came from, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. when we talk about the racial wealth divide, uh, one thing that I'm really um, clear on is that financial literacy, it's fine. Nothing wrong with financial literacy. Although I would also argue that people who are poor are far more financially literate than, than folks who have more expendable income. You got to be able to, to track your money. <laughs> Listen, I put a pin in that because you're absolutely right. People yeah. are surprised because you, yeah. you don't have a limited fund. So you, you get you get crafty, right? And you get down to yeah. the cent in terms of budgeting. Um, exactly. When you are um, on that lower socioeconomic status. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I think financial literacy will not solve the crisis because it's not what created the crisis. The crisis is created by, you know, basically racialized capitalism, really, if you want to get, you know, sort of like super real about it. Mm -hmm. It was created by intentional structures um, that existed uh, before the founding of this country and continue to this day. They were set up in ways that create, you know, inequitable outcomes in the financial realm. Yeah. And so that's why we're here. 
So one of the things you said before we get into the deeper topic around the racial and we'll make that transition, but I want to understand even your background a little bit more. So you mentioned um, that you start out as a community organizer. Um, what is that, right? For someone who's yeah. not thought about what is a community organizer? Who would you work with? How did you even hear about hear about that, right? Because I'm pretty sure you don't see folks recruiting for community organizers at career fairs. So how did you, how did you get there? Absolutely. Although, funnily enough, you know, when I, once I did become an organizer, we started doing some career, you know, traveling, but like this, it's rare. I had never heard of community organizing when I applied for the job. I, a friend and I had moved down after graduating together to D.C. We both didn't like the cold weather in the upstate New York. And she was on housing for the first day and I was on the job search and the very first job and I saw, I think it was activism maybe. And I said, would you like to fight slumlords and push for a living wage and make sure that the wealthy pay their fair share? And I'm like, well, yeah, I'm all about that. So I called in for an interview and ended up uh, finding out that was a, a DC ACORN, which is Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now is what ACORN stood for or stands for. Organization no longer exists. And that's a whole another podcast because it was uh, destroyed by this right-wing attack organization um, with so these falsified video clips that hit the media. And I'm happy to say that now that organization has just collapsed. And so I'm like, well, you know, there is some karmic justice there. But community organizing is is different. Folks might be familiar with labor organizing, you know, especially now with the you know the strikes going on, where you're getting folks in a workplace together uh, to to fight for their rights. But the difference is that you're organizing. This was neighborhood based community organizing that we did. There is also faith based and sort of other other models. Yeah. And so you, we go to you know a neighborhood in a lower income neighborhood in town, and this is what community organizers around the neighborhood based organizers do. And you knock on doors and ask people what they want to see changed in their neighborhood. I mean, it's as simple as that. And then you also have them people, you know, I like for them to do trash pickup regularly. I like for them to clean up this house on the corner that has been vacant for years and like it's attracting rats and all kinds of problems. Right. They're like, but I can't do it. And folks like, you know, you know, I've called, I've done this. And so you just continue engagement. with folks say, well, what if there were 10 people? Well, I don't know. What about 50? What if there are 100 people? And you're like, well, 100 people, that's going to get some attention. All right, well, let's make that happen. And that's literally what you do. It's like, who are your neighbors who who feel similarly? Yeah. Like, do you have a house meeting? We can bring folks together and figure out what is a shared goal that you all have. Does everybody say like, we want to go you know, after this abandoned property and get it fixed up or whatever the, the issue is. So, so community organizers really like the staffer of for low income community neighborhoods. Our goal as organizers to do the logistics, to help set up the meetings, help preserve the church is going to be the meeting space of the rec center, to run out the copies for the flyers. And again, I came up in organizing in the mid nineties. So it looks very different now. There's digital organizing. You know, we don't have to have our little clipboards walking down the street with our little walk blocks to check off. But it's very much um, a responsive model. And which isn't to say that there's not analysis. There are a couple of schools of thought that diverged in organizing because one came from the, the sort of the guy considered to be the father of organizing whose name somehow is escaping me, but he was a white guy and thought like, just bring people together and they'll, neighbors will get what they want. And that's fine and well if you don't have an ideology, right? If you don't have an analysis that, that, that this is not a, a just system we're living in. So, right. So that means that you might knock on the doors in a neighborhood and there are you know, a lot of you know, elderly folks saying, hey, these guys on the street, they're, you know, they're causing harm. They're dealing drugs. They you make us worried and I want them locked up. Now with the initial model, is it, okay, well, then we pull people together to get, you know, the, the guys off the corner. Right. 
an ide- ideological based model and social justice based organizing model says like, okay, well, why do you think those guys are on the corner? And then you start to unpack, well, there actually aren't any job opportunities. Well, you know, our education mm-hmm. system is problematic. And then you're like, okay, well, let's look at the root cause of the problem, right? Because moving those right. guys off the corner doesn't change, you know, you know who, who, who's going to come on the corner next, right? Exactly. We have to get to the root cause. It's true community organizing is about taking the lead of the community, but also helping folks shape an ideology around going to the root cause of an issue so that we're addressing those and not putting band-aids on problems because band-aids, you know, only last so long. Yes. Thank you so much for taking the time to break that down because I feel like a lot of folks really don't understand or may not know. Yeah. And by folks, I'm talking about myself, right? But yeah. yeah. <laughs> really what, um, you know, community organizing consists of. Like I had a general working knowledge, but I also didn't want to assume that everyone does. But certainly right. what you, you share expanded my existing knowledge was of, of community organizing. So thank you so much for that. I think to, to start talking a little bit about the wealth gap, you mentioned earlier that financial literacy alone, like can't solve the racial wealth gap. And one of the terms that uh, you mentioned was racial capitalism. And while I am familiar with that term, because it was a, a big part of my dissertation research for our listeners, what is racial capitalism and how did it come to create what we now are experiencing or, or you know, the buzz term of the racial wealth gap? Absolutely. So I'm, and I'm going to just pull a piece of paper because I want to quote Cedric Robinson, who created the term, and I want to quote him precisely because okay. he came up with this concept in 1983. So the, so the concept is that the racial comp- capitalism, uh, the, the exploitation and capital accumulation reinforce each other. So Cedric Robinson argued, and I quote here, that the development, organization, and expansion of capitalist society pursued essentially racial d- directions. And uh, and so what that means in the U.S., we have a country built on stolen land with stolen labor. And that stolen land and st- stolen labor is like, it's, that's not an incidental reality, right? But by... 1865, at the end of the Civil War, the, the, the U.S. became the wealthiest nation in the world, but that was a direct consequence of these one and a half billion acres of land being stolen mm-hmm. and using uh, enslaved labor to not just improve the living conditions of the people, you know, of the plantation owners, but really to dominate the textile industry. So by the outbreak of the Civil War, the market value, quote unquote, of enslaved people was more than that of banks factories and railroads combined so i just want to let that sentence all the banks in the country all the factories in the country all the railroads had less value than the um than the market value you know quote unquote of enslaved people so, wow. and so what you what that does is from you know pre you know enslaved you have this whole economy where you have very limited expenditures, very easy to dominate the field, again, when you have endless labor and when you can use, frankly, rape as a means of, of, an, of expanding your labor force. So you can extract race from wealth creation in this country. And right. then what you have is like, you know, I'm sure, you know, you know, many, I'm imagining many of your listeners are familiar with the 40 acres and a mule concept. Yep. A lot of people might not know that there were a sliver of black folks who got the 40 acres. The mule was actually not officially part. It's like, we'll give you 40 acres and maybe loan some mules was actually part of the general Sherman's order. And in South Carolina, they actually gave where we started distributing the land to some black folks, you know, at 40 acres each. And then 
And then in this effort to really reunite the country and make sure everybody was happy and to be forgiving, uh, they said, never mind folks who committed treason against the country. You can have your land back. This is how we're going to move forward by not alienating the South. So they took the land back and gave it to the previous plantation owners, which is just, you know, you know, a horrible thing. But and again, the 40 acres even then would not have been adequate. They could not adequately distribute to the four million enslaved people at that time. But what that meant, so you move from that extreme free labor, and what do plantations do then? Like, right? And they haven't been investing in public schools because they didn't care about poor white people being employees. They didn't need it. They were going to pay them. They were going to hire them. So this is really just the wealthy elite here. So you have no meaningful public services in the South compared to in the North, where slavery didn't exist as long in practice, but they very much you know, benefited from enslaved labor. I mean, the, the financial industry, Wall Street, was literally created by slave people. There's a little wall built to separate, to keep the Lenape uh, tribe from reclaiming their land. So like Wall Street was literally built with slave labor, and then the street was named that way. But so then you move from the, the Civil War era to like immediately after the Civil War, yes, emancipation. But when you don't have that 40 acres of so, folks so, so, from to having, you know, from having nothing to also having nothing, including a place to stay, right? So people got really clever in the South and said, well, we're just going to change some laws and create things called black codes to maintain this racial hierarchy. So it suddenly became illegal to change employers without permission. It became illegal to be unemployed. And again, you know, only black people were being arrested for these offenses. Selling cotton after sunset was uh, an arrestable offense, you know, by 1890, right? So what they do then, so you so you arrest folks, and then they would lease them out to plantation owners. So again, you go from being enslaved and having no freedom to being arrested to then having to work for not necessarily the exact same plantation owner, but for plantation owners. Right. And again, this just shows in a system where there is no opportunity for black wealth creation, and there's you know extreme extraction happening. And then, although of course we still have you know folks in prison right now, incarcerated folks working yeah. for pennies on the dollar, yeah. often for corporations. So it's not as if the Fourteenth Amendment freed us from slavery except as punishment of a crime. Right. That was the new Jim Crow. For those who haven't read, like the whole prison system is yet another example to your point of racial capitalism in terms of how they found new ways to basically enslave, right? Because they're free-ish labor um, in terms of they come at a very low cost of overhead to what they produce. Exactly, exactly. So you sort of couple all that and you see how race and capitalism have been intertwined. And even with the beginning of the creation of race, which is again, a different you know story, uh, early on, there there were like 50 different racial categories because races were even identified as so nationalities and religions. So you had like Germans really good at, at working in here, but like Polish are much better at this. And you look at the whole list, and strangely enough, white European men were the only people who were not bad at anything. Go figure. <laughs> and this racist created created system. So you have all this and you go all the way through World War One and to the creation of the, of the New Deal. So folks might remember that the New Deal was, you know, FDR needed to generate income. Like people, people were in bad shape, right? Because we need to fund the war effort and there was a war and we were basically the, the plan to get out of the, dep- the depression that, 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 again, was started by the wealthy elite by, by over leveraging themselves. Very similar model to what we saw in 2008. Yep. And and so they're like, okay, we've got to figure out something to sort of save the the, the country. So you create mm-hmm. 
things like the biggest thing really was the homeowners loan corporation hulk which was created to subsidize mortgages before the war before um, the new deal you had to pay about 50 percent down for most mortgages Mm -hmm. and the mortgage terms i want to say either five or ten years so very very short terms for paying off a loan and and much bigger investments so what the new deals did was say like okay we're going to have a government entity that will ensure these loans will guarantee these loans will extend the payment period and that essentially created the white middle class right so folks think about New Deal as creating the middle class, but it was really very explicitly the white middle class because uh, less than 3% of uh, folks who were not white were, were given access to these loans. And they made things even worse by creating what folks might have heard of, which is redlining. Yep. And redlining is when the homeowners loan corporation literally would take maps of major metropolitan areas mm-hmm. and draw a red line around areas that were not suitable for loans. You won't be surprised to hear those areas were predominantly black areas, right? So it could exactly. be even wealthy black areas where you have the, the black doctors, because we have segregation. So like you know, we have black only communities in lots of places. So black doctors, black funeral directors, like the, the black elite, the wealthy elite who had more money, say, than a neighboring poor white town. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. They were redlined and considered to be a bigger risk than a poor white community. So what can you do with that? And then the white communities had explicit legally racist laws saying you have race covenants, saying this community doesn't allow people of color. And people of color, and also there would be Jewish people. You know, the, the language changed, like blacks, Mexicans, Jews. You know, it could be anything, any sort of configuration, but whoever was not considered white at that time, right? Because we know... And um, that's changed over the years, too, but we won't go down that rabbit hole, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. The creation of whiteness with, yeah, just fascinating history. Because, yeah, yeah, just a brief, brief whiteness side note, 99.9% there of our genes, you know, are the same humanity. There is more racial diversity within a race than across races. So you and I as black people mm-hmm. could be more distinct genetically than you and I are from Taylor Swift. Because, again, I don't understand the mechanics, the, the science of it, but it's documented. Again, there's more genetic variety within races than across races, which just you know, underscores how much this is, a, this is a, a false concept. So you have all this happening. You have the creation of the white middle class where white folks are able to suddenly build wealth and use that wealth to pass it on to their generation, to future generations. To subsidize school, you know, education for their for their kids. Black folks don't have that access. Other folks of color have varying levels. Indigenous folks and black folks have, have been, you know, the worst off, but problematic all along. And then you have sort of again all these systems being being created by the government, like Social Security. Yay, great Social Security. Well, the problem with that was that initially it excluded farm workers and domestic workers, and these are positions that were predominantly held by folks of color. So that, yeah, I can tell you the exact number. So by the time in 1935, 65% of all Black Americans and 70 to 80% of Black Southerners were ineligible for, for Social Security because of these occupation ca- uh, classifications. Yeah. Um, in the meantime, they're still paying into tax, the taxes. We're still you know, subsidizing white wealth creation. So that's, mm-hmm. I mean, I could go on and on. So that gives you a sense of how race and capitalism have always been intertwined, even from the creation of race in this country, sort of the, the, the codification of race in this country after Bacon's Rebellion, which just briefly was a time when uh, some white landowners wanted more land and were, and, and it appealed to the governor of Virginia, uh, which is still a colony. So like, hey, we need more land. Uh, we want to attack this tribe. And the governor's like, no, we're good. You know, that's you know, a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of you know, time, effort, money. We don't need it. But like, so Bacon is the guy. Bacon is the person who comes and says, okay, look, you know, 
we want to push back and we want more land. So let's come together. So Bacon recruits free black people, enslaved black people, indentured white people, you know, everybody, you know, some poorer landowners, like we're going to, you know, fight against the, the governor of the colony so that it's basically we can take more native land, essentially. So this is a massive rebellion, incredibly successful, burned down Jamestown, Virginia, and that freaked people out. So like, oh, wait, what a second. There is a lot of alignments of poor white folks and poor black folks, you know, freed mm-hmm. or indentured or not, or in similar situations in terms of having sort of access to wealth. So we can't have this. What do we do? How do we separate this? And then race became increasingly important. Like what a distinction we have is skin color. So what we'll do is we will um, give white folks privileges they didn't have before. Now, these privileges aren't privileges they're going to give them wealth, to be clear, right? right? You now are allowed to punish a Black person. But Black folks are no longer allowed, after Baker's rebellion, no longer allowed in Virginia to, to employ white people, which shows you that Black people were employing white people. So they just sort of make, made these Black coats sort of spread throughout the South. And again, very intentionally worried about giving poor white folks any real access, but it elevated them over enslaved black people. So that's a very, you know, brief version of how race became, it was what began this cementing race in this country to protect the wealth of the elite. Well, that's all for today, folks. Enjoyed the show? Be sure to like and rate the podcast. You can find the Race, Wealth, and Health podcast on multiple platforms, including Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe and turn on your notifications so you never miss an episode. I also want to hear from you, so don't forget to connect with me on social media. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Race, Wealth, Health. By joining the online community, you'll stay updated on the latest episodes, behind the scenes insights, and engaging discussions. Share your thoughts, comments, and questions there. I appreciate your support in sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues who may also find value in these conversations. Thank you again for joining me on this journey. Until next time, take care, stay informed, and keep up the good fight for equality.